Hello, and welcome to this episode of Her Music Academia, the podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Bangura. Welcome back to the show where I talk all things music, everything from music performance to music education, music research across genres. I'm currently a PhD student in music theory at the University of Michigan, so I also use the show to talk about my own research and document my progress in my PhD program. Y'all, we are back for another season of the podcast. We're bringing you a batch of episodes during February for Black History Month and March for Women's History Month. We have some great guests coming up, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your podcast app of choice. Leave a review if you feel so inclined and tell me which episode is your favorite. Today on the show, we're starting off with a bang. I'm so excited about my conversation with Henny on the Talk. They make content all about music criticism, mostly on TikTok, but also in other places. You can find the links to all of their work in the show notes. We get into their musical upbringing, their early music experiences and influences. We talk about how they got into music criticism, thinking critically and thoughtfully about music, and how they got into content creation. We also get into sonic cues in pop music, specifically the use of scales or modes or instruments that we find frequently outside of the Western context and how the novelty of those sounds is being used in Western pop music. Without further ado, here's our conversation. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. I'm truly so excited to host this person. We've been gagged for weeks. I'm so excited um, to introduce this person who does really interesting music analysis content, music critique on platforms like TikTok and others. So we'll get all into their work today. Today we have Henny on the talk on the podcast. Henny, how are you? <laughs> Oh my god. Hi, I'm good. We're screaming. I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so incredibly geek. <laughs> like, no, for real. Like, you don't believe me. When I got that email, like, I was here, we were having a kind of like a dinner party here at, uh, at my place for my roommate's co- other content creation friend. And like, when I got the email, I like stopped the conversation. I was like, you won't believe what just happened. <laughs> like, I was so like, when I tell you, I like this is my favorite type of thing to just talk about music and talk about music with other people who love music. So when I saw this after already being plugged to your po- podcast by Ismatu, I was like, "Oh no way!" <laughs> like literally, like <laughs> like my heart. Thank stopped. you so much. Shout out to oh, my man. sister. They're the plug. Everybody, go listen to my episodes with Ismatu. <laughs> you know they're the plug. Um, but yes, I I'm I'm so excited to talk to you because so I first was introduced to your content. I think it was when you were talking to Julesy on Patreon. Um, so I'm subscribed to Julesy's Patreon, and you guys, I don't remember what you were talking about, but I remember just thinking like that person seems smart, and then <laughs> and then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, getting introduced to your content that way. And I've seen you, you've been on YouTube lately with Fab Socialism, which I love. So Henny is just chatting up all the YouTube girls about socialism <laughs> and music and other things, which have, has been really fascinating. So yeah, do you find yourself collaborating a lot with other creators? It's like, okay, so 
recently yes um but not historically and i'm like glad that i finally got into this space where i get to collaborate because it's like my favorite mm. type of creative process like it's so much more fulfilling having like this type of conversation with someone else instead of like me just mulling over things mm. in my own head and just like I don't know it's like it exercises a different part of my brain that I want to do more. <laughs> like, okay. But yeah, I think I start. I think Julesy was like kind of started the chain of me like f- doing more full collaborations. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I initially was just doing like the research, like kind of script write sort of things. And then she saw just how much like I was probably like info dumping like crazy. Like she's like, oh, I just need like a quick script, and I'm like, here's ten pages. <laughs> And she's just like, okay, well. <laughs> and he's prepared. They're ready. Yes. Her. Yeah. Like, yeah. It prompted her to like, bring me on. Like, okay, we can talk about this ad nauseum, like on, on cam. And then yeah, do stuff yeah. like that. But that's how you know it's good content. Cause clearly you're, you're <laughs> thinking deeply about things, taking your time to think about things, like letting the ideas percolate before, you know, it's not like reactionary or whatever. Like you're, you're thinking deeply through things. And that's what this podcast is all about. I love to talk about music with people who are also thinking about music, whether they're in the academy or otherwise. So yes, I have so many questions for you. We are going to start by talking all about you and your background and kind of personal history with music. So can you inform me and the listeners of where you're from, first of all, and then the music that was happening in the environment where you're from. So your family, if you come from a musical family, if there are other musicians in your family, the types of music that you were listening to as a kid, what your family likes to listen to. So kind of your early music experiences. So I was born in New York. Most of my family is from New York via the DR, Dominican Republic. So my mom was like, First, I believe my mom was like first generation, but all her siblings were mm-hmm. born in the DR. So it's like a mixed generation sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I would be second generation. But yeah, it's just from New York. But we moved around a lot. Like when I was very young, my mom sent me back to the DR to live with my father's side of the family. Then I moved back to the States. We moved to Pennsylvania. Then she moved us down to Texas. And then from Texas, I went up wow. to Seattle. Uh, to go to school. My aunt lived in Seattle and I would visit her on the summers. Uh, so I just like fell in love and I was like, I'm leaving Texas. Like, goodbye. <laughs> okay. So that's kind of the background of like where I'm from. I consider myself like from basically Texas, New York, Pennsylvania. I feel like most of my formative years were there. Mm-hmm. And that's like a lot of the music that I was exposed to growing up is primarily from those areas, like stuff that would be popular in those spaces Mm -hmm. but yeah growing up like of course music from the islands so like a lot of like reggaeton merengue bachata like a lot of like latin influence in the music Mm -hmm. when we lived in pennsylvania my mom had like this pop phase that really like sang to my gay little heart (laughs) yes (laughs) and so it's like uh, like i was getting exposed to like of course, Britney Spears' yes. debut, Christina Aguilera. Yep, yep. I think Britney Spears was actually my first. No, no, that's a lie. The CD that my aunt let me keep from Brandy was my first CD, but the first one that I bought for myself was Britney Spears. Let's go. Um, yes. Yeah. Big, big Britney fan over here. I love it. And I wore that CD out. Like, oh my gosh, I wore that CD out. 
my mom must have been sick of it and but she was like a christina aguilera girl so i think there was like a this like silent beef between us (laughs) (laughs) it's like mom you can admit you're wrong that's okay there's forgiveness over here mom it's okay But as far as like musicians in the family, like we, I grew up in the church. So my mom was always involved in choir to some capacity. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just remember her like singing around the house and my siblings, both my sister and my brother, uh, both did violin for a few years, but they didn't carry it on. Like it was like a, just kind of like a stint for when my mom like could afford like some musical education and to like rent an instrument from uh, for them to have the courses at school. Hmm. But they got that experience. I was just kind of like this weird little like mimic mockingbird sort of kid where I was like infatuated by sound. Okay. And like, but just mimic things. Like I used to drive my mom crazy because she had, um, so she did a lot of government work and, with that comes like the at-home internet connection, constantly printing paperwork and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And the printer had this particular rhythm. Um, and for the folks listening with earphones, I'm so sorry. But like, I <laughs> is it weird if I like, because I can recall the stupid rhythm and like the kind of tone that Oh, you it must had. demonstrate. This is a performance, people. This is a live, okay. <laughs> live performance. So these were like the early like inkjet printers and they would print. It was like, no matter what you printed, it had this rhythm and it would go... Like literally, like this thing just asked me if I'm playing music. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, they are. (laughs) But I would do that all the time. Like I would hear noises, just pick them up, and just be mimicking them all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was just kind of like what started my own relationship to sound because I was deeply curious very infatuated and also very easily affected by sound Mm -hmm. and i think like the first time my mom like kind of picked up on how like how much it could affect me we had rented the mummy and the score of that movie is insanely intense especially when they introduced the mummy and i remember like i wasn't scared of anything happening visually but the sonic cues of what was going to happen impacted me so much that I would have to watch the movie like this with my ears plugged because this kept it from being scary, not me seeing it. Huh. Okay. And she was like, oh, like, that's weird. And like, they, like her and my dad, who was visiting at the time, they, they just found that like so peculiar. Um, but it's always been that way. Like, I just have this like very, like, I just pick up on weird rhythms. I'll hear bits of music and other music. And I've always just kind of like, had this like connection in that way where I'm like obsessed with the pattern recognition. And I think a lot of that has to do with like regulating myself emotionally to like, Oh, like this cool little pattern. And I would just sit, like, I would just always be humming to myself, always have a tune in my mouth, like literally always as a kid and growing up. And I just carried that into adulthood and then, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I, I don't want to interrupt. This is so fascinating. Okay, so did you ever, like, formally start to, like, try to sing music or play music or write music, anything like that? No. So, like, it's interesting. I used to do it more as a kid, um, but I would, like, just sing these, like, random melodies. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was, like, stuff that, like, I was just, like, 
creating it or like I heard enough stuff around me to where it inspired like some kind of medley situation. And I would do it very often. And I still do it now to where like, if I'm singing in the shower and I'm like, oh, this song connects to this song. And I'll just like, in my mind, they're the same song and I'll just sing it through. Um, but like, I've never had formal training and I call myself like a mimic because growing up, especially the reason why I was so obsessed with Brandy is because the textures and tones that she can create with her voice were always insane to me. Like, I remember hearing, um, you don't know me, you don't know me like you used to. Is that the name of the the track? Mm -hmm. And just the way that she sings, like stressing like a fiend, like I would like, I would go over and like, it was crazy for like a six-year-old to be singing that lyric in particular. (laughs) But I would go over and over and over trying to match like the texture and like that grit, Mm. just like the warmth that she had in her tone. Mm. And that's how I learned like singing. I'm not good at singing, but it's something that I've always done mostly for myself. So like... (laughs) Okay, so this is this is deeply fascinating to me because so you know you're you're describing such like interesting detailed musical activity without <laughs> n- so like I would describe you right from from what you're saying as someone who's always been like a deeply musical person but who yeah maybe doesn't have this formal training or who um didn't formally um you know, interact with music in the ways that we think of musician, you know, um, in terms of, oh, musicians perform or musicians write music or musicians, you know, play music or whatever. Um, but this is so, the, hmm. So from the beginning, you were, yeah, you were, you know, recognizing patterns, like zooming in on musical details, like that's, that's, uh, really fascinating. And I always, whenever I talk to, um, music scholars on the show, folks with PhDs, I always ask them, like, how did you get into music scholarship, wanting to research music or being interested in music theory or music history? Because normally people, get into the the like academic study of music from you know a a formalized background of oh you know i played trumpet for 10 years and then i got interested in music history or whatever um you know we don't have a a ton of people that have been on the show that were like yes i was six and decided i wanted to be a music theorist but it's like sounds like this is you know what i'm saying this is like (laughs) no but like so this is okay for full context, like this is me reflecting on it now. I think growing up, like I, I wasn't intending on having sure. like this be my focus. It was just something that was always all around. Yeah, it felt natural. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And especially when it came to like, I think Brandy was the reason that I got like such a strong interest in R&B and the vocal stylings mm. of R&B. Yeah. Because like there was just something, even as a child, like hearing certain... I don't even want to say certain voices, but it's like how you sing something like the placement mm. would evoke emotion in me. And I would immediately be deeply curious. I'm like, whoa, like what made them sing it like that? Because I felt it like here and I'll try and like mimic it and like kind of open up my throat in a way. So I'm like, what were they feeling when they sang this? Why did they do it this way? Mm. That's fascinating. I'm like... <laughs> I'm as as we're recording this I'm like finishing up finals week right now um in my program and I just finished this whole class on like affect theory and like phenomenology and like like 
reactions in the body, like corporeal kind of precognitive like reactions in the body. So this this interesting thing that you're talking about in terms of like, oh, I heard the sound and it created this reaction in me of like mimesis, right? That like I wanted to try and mimic like or imagine oh, she's doing this with her with her mouth or this with her throat or this with her body and I'm going to like try and imitate what that is. So yeah, I'm like trying to wrap my head around affect theory right now and I don't know, I don't know what's happening. But but that's that's really interesting in terms of that being kind of a natural way that you've always interacted with music. That's fascinating. And I th- now that you're saying that, because like I, ha- okay, like quick tangent, but I made like this like video series before talking about um, just like the folks that people deem like the whisper singers. So you like, you know, the Janet Jacksons, sure. uh, like Normani, even Kalola at some, at some points, even though I think she could really blow and people like, I don't know, whisper singing asterisk. We'll put an asterisk sure. there. Not all of them are whispering. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> but like, what I what I hear when I listen to their music is someone whose like relationship to singing comes through dancing, mm. and it's like and I like and I was trying to build like a series like exploring that because I like in my mind like when I listen to them it's like almost like similar to what I felt as a kid hearing music all around me and figuring out ways to like like get it out like move through it and like make noises and like. So that's how, like, it's. So I, I want to search more about this affect uh, affect theory. Is I'll that what send you. Yes, I'll send you a syllabus. We can. <laughs> okay, because I find that so intriguing. I'm like, hmm. Yes, we could talk I love about that all after. Of the yes. Out there stuff. Um, okay, interesting. So I'd love to know then. You are participating in all this really interesting, intricate, detailed kind of musical activity as a child. So when did you start to? kind of like connect those impulses to music analysis or music criticism? Um, I think it was something that grew like very gradually, especially as a kid who grew up on the internet because my mom did government work. We always had like internet connection at home. So I had my first email on Yahoo when I was like seven And I just remember like the very early stages. I don't think it was called Yahoo Answers then, but it was like definitely like some kind of forum thing. Mm -hmm. And I would like, through that, I would witness all these conversations like online of like folks talking about things that intrigued me. And I often found myself like looking at stuff about like music, probably comprehending like so little of it as like a child, but still being like, picking up on enough things to where I started to develop my own language. And then when things moved into like social media, like very early MySpace, Mm. uh, MySpace had the bulletin feature where you could essentially just like use it like a blog. And I did that like, and more often than not, I was blogging and talking about like my favorite music or like what happened this week and how it pertains to like, Oh, like I was listening to my favorite song and this, this and that. And it just kind of grew from there. From hmm. MySpace, I went over to Tumblr was the next Oh, yes. Thing. I was yeah. a Tumblr girl. Oh, yes. <laughs> Tumblr, like, really opened me up to seeing other people having similar conversations mm-hmm. about music and me being like, oh, there's a bunch of us out here just, like, yes. super geeked about this stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, like, really, that's kind of, like, where it took off for me. So I would do, like, mini reviews on Tumblr 
And then I, when I did go to college, I kind of like, I was around all of the, like the theater kids, the music theory kids, the journalism kids. And I feel like just having that kind of peer group mm. uh, really shaped, like I picked up on a lot, learned a lot. And then it just like helped me shape like a stronger foundation, I guess. And it also got me a bit more familiar and comfortable with like, oh yeah, like I should research this. Like if I'm really that curious about it, I should like pour over pour over this for as many hours as I want. And then I just started doing that. <laughs> um, like, and then I like got Twitter would, uh, would engage with a lot of peers on there. Like Noel archives who, um, she does fantastic, uh, just archival work for like ballroom and its history and like uh, the study of like Vogue and all of that. Mm -hmm. But she also is a big R&B head. And I learned so much just from like my friendship with her and her talking about music on just Twitter. Um, and that like inspired me to finally be like, what if I like got on TikTok and just like shared my thoughts on stuff and then we're now we're three years later. (laughs) Wonderful. Okay. Also listeners, remember uh, all the links to everything we mentioned uh, will be in the show notes. So Noel archives, everything that we mentioned, check the show notes. Um, Okay. Interesting. So you've kind of just been, been creating content because my next question was going to be, when did you start creating content? But uh, it sounds like there wasn't necessarily like a formal start to that. Like you've always been, it's just kind of progressed is what it sounds like. Yeah. Okay. And I think my first bit of, uh, I might qualify as an original YouTube girly because the first video that I uploaded, I was, when did Bad Romance come out? It was like two thousand nine. Was it two thousand nine? I sang a cover of Bad Romance and I put it on YouTube. It's still floating out there somewhere because yes. I don't have access to the account anymore. Ooh. So it's out there somewhere. Yeah, links like, in the show notes. People, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but that was like my first bit of like content that was like visual, and then I finally like revisited that, like you know, damn near like fifteen years later (laughs) yes we love that oh my goodness okay okay so this is this is really exciting so let's let's talk about your content how when people ask you like what type of content you make like how how would you self-describe i don't even know what's like okay um (laughs) i focus on like music analysis yes because so often I notice that, like, I'm not making a critique. I'm just, like, geeked about some shit that I heard. Oh, yes. sorry. Some stuff that I heard. You can say shit on this podcast. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, ge- I'm, like, geeked about the shit that I heard. And then it's, like, the rest is just, like, my process of, like, being obsessed with it for however long I researched. Mm-hmm. Like, and then I share that in hopes that, like, someone else is equally geeked or builds on the conversation. Cause that's like, I think that's what intrigues me about TikTok is like, you can stitch someone and be like, oh yeah, this, this, right. and then it's like you the conversation. Add, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, listen, as music academics, we're not above this. Do you know how many articles are out there where people are just like, look at this Beethoven song. I just think it's cool. I wrote a whole article about <laughs> why I think it's, there's no thesis. I just think it's cool. Right? Like there's no, <laughs> we're just fangirls. So like, yes. <laughs> I lo- like, see, I love that. 
because like so often like i think when people think critique they always just think like negative but i'm like no like i want my critique to be more than that like i yeah. want like i want to get to like the core of something like because growing up so like music was always like a very emotional centering thing for myself so i think a lot of my critique now as an adult kind of tries to keep that as the focus and try and like not interrogate but like uncover what that was for the artist Hmm. like for the person who created it it's just like okay what was their emotional center when creating this piece like and it doesn't have it doesn't even have to be that deep sometimes your emotional center is just throwing ass like it's like, sure it's completely fine <laughs> and we like, don't let them <laughs> yeah, like, but but like i love exploring that and i think that's what i want like the basis of my content to be about um so like i guess like i want folks to see me as that instead of like influencer or whatever like when i hear that word i'm like i would never because like, <laughs> just because like i've had like i've been out three years no brand deals none of that like i've never i've never had any of that sort of thing and i don't think i have the drive to kind of get into that space interesting because i don't know how i would make it work with what i do like i just mm. don't i struggle to make the connection <laughs> sure in terms of like that not being maybe the most relevant way for you to make money from your content. I, that's interesting. Cause yeah, I will, you know, I have had a couple, a couple brands reach out about this show. It's never been enough money for me to actually entertain is what I'll say about that. <laughs> it's that always been, they reached out as, it's been ducats. So it's always been no. So mostly this <laughs> podcast is funded through some grants that I've received at the University of Michigan. So it's mostly like, other academic institutions that kind of recognize this work and they're like oh that's cool take this grant so i haven't really yeah guys are we gonna that. get henny into the academy guys by the end of this podcast <laughs> henny will be applying for their phd anyway um <laughs> we're gonna talk about that off air but <laughs> but yeah so that's that's mostly how this podcast has kind of sustained and continued um so i similarly am like i don't really know um yeah yeah if i would want to get into the influencer space at all and it's wild because like so speaking on that like the people that have approached me it's like when i have like entertained it and i give them a rate that i feel matches the work that i do and the presence mm -hmm. that i have online, it's like they just like dissipate they like they suddenly like it's like like they don't think that I'm worth the, the rate. And I'm just like, okay. So I think that has also shaped like my relationship with influencing. It's just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's, like, I mean, yeah. that's a black creator <laughs> thing too. Like in terms of us just making way less money than our white counterparts for the same content, the same types of content. But you know, there are also kind of stipulations on the content that you can make when you're making like sponsored content, right? Then you have to send it to them to be approved. And so there's also there, there are levels of um, agency that we kind of have to navigate there that make it pretty unappealing to me in general. And, and also this show I feel is like a, a public scholarship endeavor like i don't have the desire to really charge people for it because i'm the goal is not necessarily like clearly my phd is like my day job like i have a job 
<laughs> so I don't have to write like the content then serves as kind of a creative outlet for me to discuss music with other people and so that takes the pressure off in terms of oh this is how I'm making my livelihood then you have to make certain compromises and sacrifices if that's if that's your goal and that that's not necessarily like morally right or wrong it's just you've got to make some tough decisions there yeah absolutely and as someone who did like so I have like a, a daytime job now um but when I was like first, especially like kicking off the Patreon and also like working to try and get the TikTok to be something more like lucrative, mm. having that as like the sole source of income is like, it was crushing. I'm like, it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Like, That's a really vulnerable place to be. <laughs> yeah, like, absolutely. And it like, it really did crush my creative process. Like I found myself like so uninspired and like, Mm-hmm. under the wire I was like oh no this is not like this is not what I want my relationship to be with this <laughs> yeah no that's totally that's totally fair so I'm also uh interested in kind of speaking up about like public scholarship or public knowledge production public thought I'm really interested in your thoughts as I'm like, how do I ask this not as like a leading question and just be like, well, I think this. Um, but I think, you know, th- what what strikes me about your content, again, is the fact that you are engaging in analysis and critique in this like accessible, publicly available way. And in this way that is inviting like other folks into the conversation. So it's not necessarily you just like, here, here are my thoughts on this and I'm right. It's like you're, you, you are engaging in this really fascinating process of like communal knowledge production with your following that you've built. And so I'm really interested in, in your opinion on like just your thoughts about like public scholarship. Do you think of yourself as like a public scholar or like a public intellectual, a public thinker? I don't know if any of that resonates with you. So one thing, like, okay, so the place that I've gotten to now is that, like, I try not to, of course, I'll have authority over my own words, but I don't like to pose myself as, like, an authority or the authority. And I more want to just convey, like, yes, I'm just, like, like, naturally a student at heart. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's, been, and it's been a stumbling block. I think there have been like quite a few like takes or videos and stuff that I posted where I'm like, I don't think I like how that came off. Like it was very like, <laughs> like, like there was no wiggle room. Hmm. And it like, and those were, that was like, you know, lessons learned for me. And I also like, I've had the the blessing of being mutuals for, for with people like Larisha Paul, who is a journalist and has given me pointers on how to like, come at something from a more journalistic standpoint so that it's less like, you know, just being another talking head on the internet hmm. and having like more of like a, a studied, like level approach to things. Hmm. Um, and that's still something that I want to learn more. Like if I choose to go back to school, I think I would love to also have journalism be part of that, like <laughs> part of that yeah, factor. That's fascinating. I think I always want the intent, the intent to be like, I am a student and it's almost like this, like kind of 
what's it called like socratic method is that like where it's like the the teaching is like a conversation where they go around the room and everyone's just like chiming in with their interpretation of stuff oh okay yeah i think that's what it's called i could be butchering that i'm so sorry to the listener if that's not factual (laughs) (laughs) but i think that's what the approach is called because my my history teachers used to do that Mm -hmm. in high school my teacher kind of like okay like since we all read the chapter here's how we're going to do it and that was a better like learning method for me Mm -hmm. as a student I want to provide that with other people like hey like you can chime in you can share what you think right um we just have it as a conversation instead of like who's right who's wrong sure it's more beneficial in the long run that we're all getting these different perspectives. So that's what I always share in hopes of, that I can get someone to like, like I mentioned earlier, like TikTok is great for building on the conversation. My hope is that I will like I will post something and I'll wake up to like 50 stitches of people sharing their own perspective. That mm-hmm. is always my dream because I love that process of collaboration. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, you're wanting to establish with your audience less of a like formal kind of student teacher relationship. I'm going to teach you the thing and tell you the right way to think about it versus like, let me share my thoughts with you and like genuinely ask you to join in on the conversation to add your thoughts, like inviting you to think critically with me, you know, so like you're saying, a, a much more kind of collaborative relationship rather than like, you know, creator, audience, student, you know, teacher kind of thing. Exactly. And it's like, and a lot of it is prompted by me, like, questioning a lot of things that we've like, norm, like that we normalize mm-hmm. culturally. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of like an example. And the only one that's like popping up is like, when I investigate, I investigated like the way people use Whitney Houston's off key on the record. Mm. Uh, to, like To make like a critique of a singer that they don't particularly like. And I remember this viral, like the, the critique or the, the hit tweet went viral and it was someone making fun of Amory for one thing. And they're like, Oh, the definition of being off key on the record. And I listened, like, first of all, I was obsessed with that song as a kid. So number one, you're not going to (laughs) disrespect Amory. And I was like, I don't even have a stand card. Mm -hmm. That song is iconic. Yeah, And, like, I listen to the song, like, over and over and over again. I'm like, what would prompt someone to think that this is off-key on the record? Like, yes, she has a very bright, like, pingy mm-hmm. uh, kind of tone. But it's, like, you know, it's, like, par for the course for the, the type of music that she's singing, which is, like, pop music derivative of go-go music. Mm-hmm. You need this, like, energetic, like, mm-hmm. I'm going sort of sound. And then, like, the more I listened to it, I was just like, okay, like, maybe what they're hearing, like, I did so much research, and I was like, okay, I need to make this into a video. So I made a video breaking down how she's not off-key on the record. Folks are just, like, unfamiliar with tension in music, which is what she's doing with her melody versus the production. Speak on it. Mm. And I was just like, yeah. So it's like when we misquote Whitney Houston, we're doing a disservice to Whitney Houston, who was a musical genius. Yes. And also just, the, like, the people that you're trying to critique who, like, entire teams put this song together. It's like, like, like you, you're making a, a, like a, a critique of, like, all of these producers and musicians that made this phenomenal track and you're, like, off-key on the record. And I'm just like, uh, it's more nuanced than that. Because <laughs> if she's off-key on the record, like, what are y'all going to say about, like, Chloe and Hallie when they're doing their, like, siren kind of... Um, 
what's it called where it's like not it's not atonal is that atonal that's not the word where it's like they're it's not a traditional harmony mm-hmm. it's like ah gosh do you get what i'm trying to yes. say like yeah. i'm like forgetting the word like yeah <laughs> <laughs> but like if if amory is off key on the record then so are beyonce's protégés it's like sure like you can't just like make that critique anytime you don't like the way something sounds right because that's like chances are that's not the the most accurate assessment right 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 or you're you're disregarding like like, the intentions behind that sound yes 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 and so i I like to investigate that way and then present it like here's this like thing that i once thought was a very lofty concept and this is how i'm pulling it into my space and my everyday life Hmm. and that's how i'm learning about it and then i try and present that and show other people like how are you going to do that? Like, how are you going to like be a curious person today? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. How are you going to be a curious person today? I'm like, when are you selling buttons, stickers? <laughs> I want one. That's perfect. Um, yeah. So, okay. Last question before we get on to our like main topic for the day, I would love to know. So what are you hoping to do with your content in the future? Or if there are other kind of music related endeavors that you are thinking of pursuing i i'd just love to know what we can expect i so i'm in the process of writing a lot for just a substack currently yes um but i would love for that to like kind of transition into finally like doing paid gigs like writing for publications like i would love to have a byline in the next i'm giving myself 2 years love that <laughs> um, and I think like the next step is like, I, I really, I'm in love with the process of being behind the scenes. So while it's been fun being in front of the camera, I don't think that's where my heart is like long-term. Mm, interesting. <laughs> um, but I would love to still like be creating like, of course on Patreon and stuff. But I think like writing for public for publications is like my dream and having more like collaborations like this, mm. like maybe like a podcast down the way. Yes. <laughs> but I think as it sits, like this process is what I love. Yeah. Like, no, that's really fascinating because I, you know, I've received the advice, I'll say, a lot about this podcast, which is not a visual podcast. It is a um, an audio medium only. I do not record video or post it to YouTube. or And so, so many people have been like, Lydia, you really got to chop up, <laughs> you know, you got to record. Visual podcasts are the things now. You got to put it on YouTube. You got to chop it up and put it on TikTok. You got to, the podcast doesn't have like a public presence in terms of like, there's not like a Her Music Academia, like YouTube channel or, you know, Instagram or Twitter or whatever. And so I understand that I'm kind of sacrificing reach because faces reach and video reaches um, more than like simply audio. But I can't, that's so much extra work too. Like the level of, now I have to get a camera. I just, mm. Mm, mm. so yeah, it's interesting to hear you kind of narrate your experience to like being kind of a public facing figure with like your literal face versus me. It's just my voice. I'm never going to get like recognized on the street or anything like that. Like I'm very much like, like Isma too has started to receive that where they live in New York. So like, it's yeah, <laughs> I don't it think so I could bring daunting. myself to do it. 
It is so daunting. Like the first time I was publicly recognized was in downtown LA outside of not, I guess not downtown. It was Hollywood. Cause it's a, it was outside of Amoeba records. And I was like, I don't know. It was like really jarring to me. And this is a, someone who like, I'm, I kid you not from like elementary to high school. Like I didn't like getting my picture taken. I only had like maybe four picture days that I actually showed up to. Uh, I wouldn't let my friends take pictures of picture me. Day. <laughs> like, I didn't like it. It's so like something about like just staring at myself in the, like the, mm-hmm. like even now, like avoiding my gaze. Cause I just don't like it. On most of my TikToks, I'm just like looking off to the side. Cause I hate like doing this. Okay. Okay. It's like really daunting. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, but I mean, I mean, your content it's so it's so <laughs> successful and relevant, and but it is really interesting to hear you wanting to get more into writing. So I'll definitely be interested to see the Substack once that starts to roll out. Um, and again, listeners, don't worry. Behind the scenes, we'll get them into a PhD. They just need to. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that later. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Because um, again. Again, another a really important part about this podcast is that there are, sure, music scholars um, that are on the show, but also people that are not in the academy, but are still doing such interesting like research and thinking and making content for the public because the like the university the academy we don't make stuff for the public like it's not actually designed to be accessible so much of it is behind like paywalls or you have to belong to an institution to see it or again we just use language that is so inaccessible like we're writing to each other basically like scholars are their own audience and so that's why i'm so interested in public thinkers think like people who are really thinking critically in public and who are inviting the public to think critically alongside them because academia is not really concerned with like outreach you know (laughs) yes i like even so like touching back on like my experience on like tumblr and twitter so that was like the first time that i saw like academics talking about music amongst each other Mm. and like whether it was meant to or not the conversation always like felt so exclusive because of like the terminology and just like how things are and I was just like whoa like if I wasn't a person that was like dedicated to like googling every other term sure and watching like three videos to kind of get like a stronger concept of like okay what are they talking about yeah like, yeah but like to, like, to somebody who wants here. who's really intrigued by that stuff but then yeah you get three sentences in you're like okay this isn't for me because i can't understand it and it's like i yeah. don't want people to assume it's not for them but i even bought my little like music theory for dummies book like it's around here somewhere. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's why I think people who are who are doing work like you are it's it's so important to show the public that like no you can think critically and you can be a part of the conversation and like you can participate in the knowledge production around music. So, yeah, I just I love it. I admire you so much. Oh, it's mutual <laughs> like your brain. Uh Everything, like, I'm like, I'll just be listening to the podcast. I'm like, wow. Like, first of all, lines of questioning always on point. Like, (laughs) I love the way conversation unfolds with you. It's like, it's just incredible. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm going to, I won't cut it out. I'll leave it in. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Leave Um, it in. 
if it's missing when you suddenly spell something like mm. okay Jaya, you can leave it in <laughs> all right <laughs> um okay so let's let's move on to talking about um the main topic for today which you have chosen um popular music i'm like how do i even how did you even phrase it so you want to talk about popular music the use of the organ and other kind of like Mm, other kind of foreign signifiers in in popular music um and kind of the effect that they have on the listeners uh at large so yeah i'm i'm wondering like how did you get into this topic so i think what prompted this topic was actually all of the discourse so like do you remember like when uh, beyonce had that whole like phase it was like i remember being exposed to it on youtube so often where it's like beyonce is a witch because of this this and that and these people are so <laughs> affronted by like her using like non like well i can't even call it non-western because the, the fact of the matter is that it's like western interpretations of like sure. eastern music yes yeah mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and people were like oh my gosh did you hear that and like the whole time it's like she's just navigating the mi like a minor scale yeah. and folks are, this is so, she's a witch she's casting a spell and like growing up with that and like and it prompted the whole like beyonce illuminati thing and i've been exposed to this like my entire life i remember being in the church and having the pastor take time out of his sermon to talk about beyonce and lady gaga being witches what yes and like they and even uh, so this is like i'm not going to mention the church because i don't know how far they're reaching but it, it's a prominent tv church Ooh. in texas google people and this google. woman would take you know she would take the secular secular music the sexy music of today sure. and rework it into a worship song and they would do that with beyonce they would do it with um, wait like parodies but like worship like yes and, like they would change it to be about like worshiping god instead of and they were like they claimed that they were taking this music back from lucifer and i'm like <gasps> i need to listen to this <laughs> it was just so much and what? even as a kid especially as like a gay a gay kid who yeah. was already being demonized by the church like i would hear that and in my mind i'm like the way y'all don't get it was like even as a kid, I knew that they like it was just like trifling, just like ridiculous, a ridiculous interpretation of stuff that wasn't normal to like the American, like Western pop music yes. type of ear. Okay. And how it often like it so often coincides with propaganda. Mm -hmm. It's like they'll, they'll hear these like minor scales and then they'll be like, oh, did you hear that? And it's like Beyonce like interpolating some kind of Arabic riff into the music and suddenly like she's uh manifesting demons in your home mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay i have so much to say about this so this is hilarious because i mean so obviously beyonce as a cultural figure has been getting these sorts of critiques since her very early career right it used to be like so many comparisons to like madonna the sense of her morality always being questioned or her being demonized as evil especially in comparison to white women right like that's been going yeah. on since her early career but this claim that she's like and and then of course now we're seeing it with doja cat although she's very much embraced the imagery of, <laughs> of <laughs> the devil um but you know so this concept of her being demonized and her morality coming into question has 
always been a thing that she's had to deal with throughout her career. Y'all haters corny with that Illuminati mess, right? But <laughs> um, I also think, so it's so interesting that you've wanted to bring up this conversation in relation to um, the use of other modes that are just kind of less common in Western popular music. There is an uh, an article in Music Theory Online, and I also did have this person on the podcast. Uh, I did an episode, uh, this was, ooh, a year ago or so, with Megan Labengood and Kara Stroud, who, Megan wrote this article about, like, 80s popular music, like, timbre and 80s popular music, and the use of, like, there's this layer that's added with like a non-Western instrument to add this like spicy kind of exotic flavor to, right. And then she, and she really um, dives into as her main case study, do they know it's Christmas by Band-Aid and kind of the, um, the, the instrumentation of that song um, that that's especially about like singing about black children in Africa who are without Christmas and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, so she's bringing up these instruments in this, like, really exotic, exciting sense that, like, add this, like, pizzazz to this otherwise would be just, like, very boring pop music. Um, but you're yeah. bringing it up in this kind of spooky, demonic sense that, like, the use of non-traditional Western instruments would kind of evoke this scary, spooky, demonic imagery, which I think is really fascinating so it's just like what does that say about our you know conceptualizations of the rest of the world that we just like use it in the spicy sense to like (laughs) and this is okay my okay so my take is that it would be like a lot of this the reason why i said propaganda is because i noticed that a lot of it coincides with like the onset of like music being now attached to videos so we have music videos and a lot of the time so you'll hear like this almost like soundbite and also like hip hop is very guilty of this. Um, I think of like so many songs from Timbaland where he like uses like uh, a South Asian sort of like instrumentation or just uh, like, uh, what are they called? Ragas? Mm. Like the the different, yeah. And he'll like interpolate that and then like immediately it clicks in your brain like oh this is a sexy song sure and it's like that's such a wild jump from like its original context to like it being forced through this filter to get into like western pop or hip-hop music Mm -hmm. and then suddenly you have like no this is like this is the sexy song this is about like throwing ass and like sorry it's wild how often that another culture gets contextualized in that way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and what i noticed about uh what made it very easy so now like getting into the more recent thing is how how that made it very easy for folks to of course the the song name itself but unholy by sam smith and kim petras and how you don't know how to keep your business clean
so many of the crazy critiques that I was seeing, especially on TikTok, where unfortunately, like, right wing kind of like nut job sort of people have access to that app as well. So they get on there and they're just like, oh, this is how Sam Smith is controlling your brain with this, uh, with the melody of this song. And then oh, like, now we're getting I go into and- like hypnotics. Is that what we're? Yes. <laughs> And then, like, and then I go and listen to the song, and I was like, "Oh, like Phrygian dominant mode, like that's what you're impressed about." Like, and it's like, and then you listen, and then, and it it wouldn't take off so easily if like these pop artists themselves didn't feed into it, because mm-hmm. very often you'll hear like this particular scale being explored. Um, one thing that I like, what I mentioned earlier, the Western interpretation of Eastern music, the girls in Cairo. Thing that gets interpolated in so many different songs like like sure and immediately for so many like uh, i think they called it like it was associated with like the hoochie coochie dance or whatever which is like the essentially these like white women that would bastardize belly dancing for like and it this was the music that they would do that to mm-hmm. and it was like their cosplay mm-hmm. of not even just one culture but like several different cultures being like forced into this weird mishmash for like european enjoyment yes <laughs> yeah yeah and then that now made its way into our music now i can think of like so many like mike snow in that genghis khan song he has that interpolation sure. hypnotic by zella day mm-hmm. um that was another big moment and i was like oh and even on the single cover it's like definitely giving orientalist like she's in this weird like i don't know what she's wearing but the the clear angle is supposed to be like the east Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and that's the whole thing is we're not even being specific it's just like the east that's the whole point is that (laughs) we're not caring about (laughs) historical accuracy or cultural you know and i'm also thinking of um Talk Dirty by Jason Derulo, right? That mm-hmm. whole skill with the with the auto-tuned saxophone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's like this recognizable to the West, like sexy instrument, but using yeah. this <laughs> using this mode makes it exciting and exotic, which is literally a song about dating women from other countries. <laughs> <laughs> In this, oh my gosh, and that just reminded me, I think the most like egregious, blatant example they got pulled from Radio Waves was Indian Flute by Timbaland and Magoo. Do you remember that no, song? No, I don't know about this song. What? I like <laughs> if I if I sang it right now, like the lyrics are crazy, but like he's just like, I love your Indian flute. And that Excuse was the me? lyric. <laughs> that was literally that was literally the whole chorus of that song and it was like just pulling um i forgot the name of the singer who he was producing but she i believe i maybe i don't think she was even like i don't think she was uh south asian or indian she might have been like pakistani oh boy (laughs) and it was just like it was such a crazy thing but i noticed how often that happens even in hip-hop music like right I have a playlist where I'm like trying to like get a better understanding of this. And I just call it like uh, the Silk Road because it's like, like literally no, it's yeah. like music. I'm thinking like, of like all like of Missy Elliott's from- old video. <laughs> yes. yes. And I'm just like, huh? Like how much of this was like 
cultural exchange and how much of it was like cultural appropriation. Yeah. And uh, like, I just think of that very often because it's like pop music just contextualizes everything as a sonic cue for like exoticism, sexiness. Um, if like, even now when I'm listening, when folks are like recommending a lot of K-pop music, there's this like aggressive affect that they adopt with their tone when they want to do like the rap part. And I'm like, what cultural context do y'all have for that? Mm. Like, I just saw a video of like K-pop drill and these, these young women were like over here, like, like, oh, it was, I'm like, I was like, where's the, where's your cultural context for that? It's just like a very, like, you're just like contextualizing it as this thing where it's like, this is entertaining to the masses now, mm-hmm. but it's so far removed from the, the actuality of like, you know, um, oh my gosh, there was this, uh, what is her name? I want to say something on Monday, Marla. Marla on Monday. I think she is the person that had, uh, she did like a breakdown of it, but it was just like, a lot of what you hear in drill is like these little ad libs speak to a, a, a bigger cultural issue. So it's like the reason why you hear that in drill music that like, like it's because gun violence is a major issue in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that is a way in which that respective black community would like vocalize that. So sure. it's like, it's weird that it's just like now it's entertainment value purely. And there's a K-pop group out there that's just like hitting, that little, like, <laughs> like hitting that little dance and treating it that way. And I find that very like, I'm not trying to like demonize everyone that does that because like pop music is like so far gone. Like that's always going to be how pop music works. It's like what keeps the cog like churning forward. Mm-hmm. But I think it's something that's worth investigating because so many cultures get erased that way. Yeah, Um, yeah. And I think that it's really interesting in terms of, so because pop music cannot be divorced from, like, capitalism, right? Like, because pop music is made to be consumed, like, that is what is creating this feedback loop of, like, we're always needing new exotic things, exciting things to consume. And so that's where that kind of erasure happens. And it's so easy for us in the West to claim, like, no, I was influenced by that thing. Like, it is cultural exchange. And it's like, I think there are other, you know, cultures that would bear to differ. Like, (laughs) you know, there's... (laughs) I think that's a Western attitude of like, no, but like, I grew up around black people, so I can say it. And it's like, okay. Um, <laughs> if you ask them, they might say something different. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's interesting. But I'm always so like, it, I'm always very aware of that. And I noticed that with like, in this in the Sam Smith song Unholy, like when he is singing the Mommy Don't Know, da, 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 and it's like what you hear in the background is like almost like these hordes chanting. Mm-hmm. Like there's like a it's almost yeah, a Gregorian just, chant, like, yeah. Yeah. And and I'm just like, these are very interesting elements being used to convey to the listener unholy, deviant. And that was my uh initial critique of the song, where it's just like, I don't know, like. I've seen this done before where like, you know, queer is immediately deviant. And then you attach basically this very Christian interpretation of Eastern 
music mm. and then use that to bo- like to buoy your your argument of like queerness being deviant because right. these brown people that make this music are also deviant yes. to Christian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a and really then, wild yeah, connection. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, that's a very interesting thing, but it's a recurring theme in mm-hmm. pop music. Mm-hmm. Like Sam Smith is not the first la- or the last pop star to do that. Like it's going to just continue happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so like this reclamation of, you know, of queer folks, to say, well, of course, if we're if you're calling us deviant, then we're just going to adopt that identity, and we're actually going to perform this deviance, right? But then, like you're saying, to to then pair it with other people that are also deemed deviant or unholy, but for very different reasons, um, and then we're erasing the difference there um, to kind of mash it all up into this pop song. It's it's hmm. <laughs> it's a very like with the globalization of sound, like I, it's unfortunate that this is very often the outcome. Mm-hmm. Cause like, like hopping back to like the K-pop thing, like, so K-pop now is like in this place where it's like, clearly like there's this relationship between K-pop and Western music, especially sure. like hip hop in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's interesting that like, we've just created this formula that even now in Korea, they're just using that instead of like globalizing music in a more, I I don't, I want to say authentic, but that just feels like really dismissive of a lot of people that could resonate very strongly with the music that comes from over here. Sure. Um, But it's like, we're just creating this like endless cycle of like, violence might be extreme to some people, but I'm going to use violence because like, that's what erasure is like. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, it, there's violence in that. And it just like, that's the way we've chosen to just globalize music instead of like having more instances of genuine cultural exchange hmm. that would take up the main stage. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also making me think of, in, in terms of um, the use of these different like modes and scales in our popular music in the West, it's making me think of, this is something that I also referenced in an episode I did uh, listeners with uh, Brent Ferguson on music theory pedagogy. And so he was the one that introduced me to this, this godforsaken TED Talk by none other than Bobby McFerrin, where he, I don't know if you've seen this TED Talk, it's wild, right? Where he like... <laughs> I'm writing this down immediately. <laughs> It's listeners, do I dare put it in the show notes? Here's what happens, right? Is is it's this like big piano on the stage and he's like jumping from key to key, right? And he has he has the audience sing, right? So he like sings like here's the first note and here's the second note. And so then he's jumping back and forth between the keys and having the audience sing like done 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 like as he's singing or as he's jumping on stage and then he goes done done and jumps one more and they sing done 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 and so they like bobby mcferrin uses that as his like thesis that like music is like a universal language that like all people like intrinsically know when it really is like that's just the pentatonic scale. Like that is that is a scale that's familiar that we are familiar with. But how can you say that this scale is like a universal right? So it was just like he he goes dun 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 and then like smiles to him. He puts his hands on his hips. He's like, there we go, and that's the thesis. And then you're like, what? 
it's like okay no 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 no. so you're like in california you're in like a very specific context where sure the people in that room right are have been hearing like a major scale their entire lives so they're gonna sing dun 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 but that doesn't mean that if you were in any other context especially outside of the west that they would do the same thing so he like (laughs) tried to make this argument of music as like a universally understood embodied language and it was like sir Meanwhile, there are there are explorations of music that are way older than, yes. than that. So it's like, if you were really going to make that argument, you should go back like maybe centuries before. Like, like It was oh, really, really, right. It was really, and he thought he did something. So it's just like, <laughs> it's just. We need to, we need, we need a timeout. Like we in the West, we need, we need to sit down. <laughs> what I'm going to say about that. That's like the epitome of like centering ourselves. Yeah, that's really. Wow. <laughs> but this is a real thing that like, and all the comments are like, oh my God, this is amazing. Music is a universal language. And it's like, if we're going to, I mean, if we're going to talk about music as a, like, deeply human, universal experience, we're not going to do it through scales and modes, right? We're not going to do it through, like, learned conventions, <laughs> right? Yeah. That, like, we are all familiar with, dep- depending on our context and our upbringing and the music that we are surrounded by. Like, th- there are there are value systems that differ from culture to culture that are reflected in their music. And so, like, we can talk about music as something that, like, most cultures... See, I can't even say all. Most cultures have and really value. Um, But I can't even say all. So, uh, when we're talking about music as, like, a universal kind of human experience, I don't know what people are... I don't think they know what they're trying to say. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I feel like... It's in that conversation, it's almost like better to start small. Like, because I've done, like, granted, I feel like I've probably done stuff like that while researching. Like, just the other day, I was like, I saw, like, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole where I was like suddenly exposed to like a bunch of like, I don't even know what to, the proper name for them is, but it's like, uh, so the music that Mizrahi Jewish people sing. And as I was like watching this person sing what I'm assuming is a, like a lot of scripture. In my mind, I was like, oh, this feels so much like call and response hmm. that I grew up with, listen, like being a part of in the church. But I wouldn't like force, like, because it for them, it might be a lot more of a nuanced thing happening that I'm culturally unaware of. So I can like, I can kind of look at that connective tissue and be aware of it. But to just be like, this is this feels very like insensitive in a lot of cases so to do that is like uh it's i feel like it's a slippery slope (laughs) Mm. yeah i agree and so yeah i just think um thank you for for bringing this conversation to the podcast because what what things like that bobby mcferrin video really reveal again is how how contextual music actually is how that affects the reception history how that affects like right like it is so dependent on the context of origin and then of course how it spreads and so like you know it's really just revealing 
our impulse to assume that our context is the norm and is universal. And mm-hmm. then that makes all the more sense that like other cultures would continue to be appropriated and mismanaged by us, mishandled by us for our own, like you're saying, pleasure, benefit, entertainment, and that those are always fetishized, demonized, or, you know, um, so wh- whether it is like, oh, we're revering this, this song as this like really exciting thing, that's because of exoticism, not because we're handling that music properly or respectfully. Um, yeah. or, oh, that music's scary, so I don't want to listen to it. Like, those are two sides of the same coin. Even, um, I think of, like, Aniko. Are you aware of their music? They have that Jericho, Walls Come Falling Down. I don't think song. so. It's a really, like, their music is incredible, but they also, like, there was this recent campaign, like, just a few months ago, where this, like, uh, this woman affiliated with whatever church was just, like, basically doing the thing that I spoke about where like our, our, uh, our worship team would like reinterpret secular music for the church. This woman did that to Aniko's music hmm. and then claimed that uh, their music was of the devil and that she felt inspired to change the lyrics to be about Jesus. And then she just kind of trucked forward and like was pawning out like peddling this song to churches and stuff and being associated as the face of the song. Mm-hmm. Like she literally, and it was, this is a white woman doing this to a black person. Mm-hmm. Like an established black recording artist, like had this happen to them. Right. Like that is like, mind boggling to me. And it just like, it blew up on TikTok and this, this white Christian woman is now the face of it. And I'm just like, Wow. And it really, it like forces you to like reconcile with the fact that like the music industry is an industry and what we, what we like our output is never going to be disconnected from like the reality that we are an empire. Like we hold a lot of power and music helps with that Mm -hmm. for a lot of folks. So it's like, yeah, it's like if your only interaction with other cultures is through this very filtered, bastardized lens, Mm -hmm. then what is like your tolerance for just like differences in culture, differences in like in viewpoints when it's just like all you you have is like these little sonic cues to pair up with with people and cultures that are so much more nuanced Mm -hmm. and so so much more varied too. Yeah. And it feels like such a like it feels like such a colonial like instinct to like like you're saying with like this this white christian woman like saying oh i felt called to like change the lyrics and to blah 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 and to the so the fact that there's all these like simultaneous kind of like reclamations happening right of like queer people are gonna like reclaim the fact that they have been labeled as as deviant and as unholy and as evil and so they're going to use all this imagery and use the you know um especially using kind of this this ironic use of the organ as like the connotations of it as like a sacred instrument we're going to use it in this context to like you know so it's like oh there are all these like reclamations happening of like queer people of black people of that the names that they call you okay fine then i am that name and it it the the idea that it like takes away the power of that name once the marginalized group kind of takes it on but 
you know, groups that claim to be marginalized, I'll say, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, also feel entitled to this kind of reclamation. And so, like, it's this impulse to, um, like, collect and use, um, these kind of raw music materials outside of their original context in order to, um, you know, for your own like political use and for like the, the, the continued kind of grab for like power and influence. So again, it's like for different reasons why groups are participating in this behavior, but it's really, it's really fascinating that, you know, white Christian groups would want to almost like reappropriate, right? Like the same, the same sounds. And one thing that I did notice, so speaking of the organ in that video uh, by Sideways, so for the listener, Sideways is a video essayist, Mm -hmm. I guess is what I could call that channel. Mm -hmm. Um, Links um, in the show notes, I'll put it in the show notes. (laughs) And they, and they were breaking down like why we perceive organ music to be scary And it's essentially like they break down the process of like the years that it went through for us to like kind of build this shorthand for um, what was the even the piece? It was Takata. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. In in like in transposed uh, to I forgot what key, Mm -hmm. Um, but it just became like this sonic motif in film. Yes. And then like, so it makes me wonder. It's like, yes, like I think with pop music in particular, I don't think the like the wide breadth of it had this diabolical intent, but I think it's folks like forcing a shorthand and us doing that for so long that we just like we're losing recipes. Mm. <laughs> like, like, and I think that's like another thing to think to think about there. Like it wasn't always supposed to be diabolical, but it's very interesting how this shorthand can easily be used for a diabolical message or just like something just like really insincere. Hmm. (laughs) Again. And it's so clearly, so like you're talking about in terms of the use of the organ and that it being kind of like codified as a scary instrument really happening in film, again, connected to capitalism. It's like, we need to sell this, (laughs) you know, we need to, again, we need to develop this signifier that we can use in the rest of these movies so that, you know, if someone is playing the organ and playing this Bach piece on the organ, then you know that it's, (laughs) it's evil hours. Like, yeah. So like they've (laughs) developed all of these, you know, like you're saying sonic kind of signifiers in terms of that, that we're now, that we now attach to people like, Oh, that the, like, you know, if you're if you're hearing loud rap music blasting out of a car, you immediately have assumptions about who's driving that car, even if you don't see the person driving the car, right? Like, so we're now attaching all of these, like, phrases, signifiers, instrumentation, use of modes and scales, right, to people, and then people are, you know, uh, kind of remixing it, but but as it gets sold... And as kind of those sounds get more and more solidified um, and tied to certain identities, um, they're further removed from their original context. So yeah, it's in, it's capitalism, baby, always, <laughs> <laughs> and colonialism, <laughs> imperialism, like you've also mentioned. 
<laughs> all of those things. What's the bell hooks? A white supremacist cap? Im- no, imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Yes, read your bell hooks, everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, is there anything else in particular that you want to make sure that we get to? Um, no, I think that was like kind of like the the crux of the whole thing. It's like I find all of that incredibly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, it, it's really formed a lot of the way that I do engage criticism now, just because I like, like the investigative work is something that I feel like more people should be like comfortable doing. Mm. So like, I would always love to like show that process and just like encourage folks to just like, yeah, like go down that road, like see where it takes you. Cause like, I've like literally the past three years, I've just been like nothing but learning. Like I'm not in school, but like, it's been like, it's been a great like learning process. But yeah, that's, that's kind of it. Like I, I just, I just enjoy these conversations. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was amazing. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, so that is going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much to Henny for being on the show. I really loved being in conversation with them, and I so appreciate their work as someone who is so interested in and passionate about knowledge production around music in public, with the public. Again, the links to all of Henny's work will be in the show notes, so make sure you check out their Instagram, TikTok, Patreon, YouTube, and check the show notes for links to all the music that we mentioned. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode of the podcast, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for what I should talk about next on the show, or you're a musician, you're musical in any way, and you want to talk to me about what you do in music, please send me an email at hermusicacademia at gmail.com or go to my website, hermusicacademia.com and fill out the contact form there so you can tell me all about what you do in music. I can't wait to hear about it. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>